Welcome to the Prosperity Perspective by DML, a conversation about how successful business owners invest their hard-earned money to preserve their wealth and what they might have done differently in hindsight. Well, thanks for joining us today, guys. Today, we're joined by Stuart Townsend. Uh, He's got a phenomenal story that talks through uh, and will really focus on how uh, when life got him down or uh, what others would see as failure, that we saw it as a uh, kind of learning block uh, or something that kind of defined us moving forward. Uh, We'll talk about everything from uh, furniture shops to SaaS models uh, to cannabis and blockchain. And so excited for the conversation today. Uh, as we get started, Stuart, do you want to just take a moment and introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, sure. Thanks a lot, Liam. Uh, great to meet you all virtually, obviously. Yeah, Stuart Townsend. I'm based out of a little place called Lancashire in England, um, which we were just discussing pre-show, just about the weather as usual, because it's a very English thing to do. Um, and I like flowery shirts, and I uh, can't wait to get back out again and socialize and actually meet people. Uh and something I think we take for granted in the different parts of the world at different status uh, in this COVID journey uh, and being definitely. able to get back out and see people. But um, uh, can you share a little bit about, uh, you know, just quickly your high level of uh, coming from corporate and kind of the entity that you're at today and uh, some of the success that you've had along the way? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm a little bit older probably than uh, most of the audience, but um, in my twenties, I started life selling steel and, and soon realized that was not the vocation for me at all. It was, it was um, archaic, shall we say. Uh, so I went, put myself through a, a part-time university course and got a degree, which you have to do in England to get any sort of corporate job. And I was one of the last people hired at some microsystems um in the 2000s um, as, a, as um, a graduate, but I was 30. I was the oldest graduate in town. Um, and I worked my way through there uh, over 10, 12 years and had an amazing time. And, and for those that don't know, Sun Microsystems was, was a hot company um, for a long time with its technology, but also just an awesome, fun place to work. Um, and through that period, I set up um, Startup Accelerator programs, so, sold to Spotify, Last FM, worked with large organizations. Um, and then Oracle bought Sun, um, and Oracle wasn't for me. It was a bit too corporate-y. Uh, and I left and then worked for a couple of startups. Um, one was a company called Datasift, which was one of three licensees of Twitter's Firehose um, globally. Um, so we did big data, um, real-time analytics. That, that was amazing. Um, I learned how to order pizza to keep developers happy, make lots of tea and coffee, and um, it basically taught me that corporate life is the easiest job on the planet. Working for a startup um, is is hard. It's definitely hard, but amazing. Um, and then just uh, a couple of years into that, I was approached by Zendesk pre-IPO uh, and was brought in as a channel director there to build out and run uh, their EMEA operation, EMEA channel program. It didn't exist. So did that over four years um, and then realized, yeah, I think it's time to leave now. Um, I'm fed up of trains to King's Cross. I'm fed up of planes. Uh, and then I left and, and we'll talk a little bit more, made, made some errors along this little journey post that. Um, but I've now got to a place where I've set up a, a consultancy that works with um, B2B SaaS companies that are looking to grow revenue for their indirect um, sales um, side of the business. So that's channel, it's VARs, it's resellers. Um, and alongside that, I've got some interest in two businesses as well that we can uh, delve into later. 
we'll dive into. Yeah, absolutely. So it's obviously you've had some experiences where you've been part of uh, the startups uh, who have been acquired, right? And usually tends to be very lucrative for the people who are there as well as the executives, right? And I'm sure that's part of your success, right? So jumping right in, you know, the key question that we love to understand and get your perspective on is uh, once you reach that point of success uh, and you had that money that was flowing in, you know, what did you do from an investment standpoint? Uh, where did you put the money? Did you put it towards, you know, the, the fancy car, the nice house? Did you, uh, you know, uh, go invest in something else? Uh, obviously, uh, as you've moved in further in your career, you've now invested in your own business and, and working on that. Um, so kind of curious in those, you know, earlier years, once you had that big uh, payday and, you, you know, you reached that status, uh, kind of what was that decision making like for you and kind of what did you pick and what did you invest in? Um, yeah. So I'm going to reveal my soft spot here, which is fast cars. Um, <laughs> so, so there's a couple of points in, in that sort of career path. Um, I, I'd got married very early and got divorced, um, in my thirties. So I got, uh, um, yeah, it's like late thirties. So I decided I'd, I'd always wanted a Porsche before I was thirty. Um, so I, I went through a step of career at Sun and sort of doubled my salary. Went on to a Target bonus. Decided to buy a Porsche nine eleven. Amazing, awesome, loved it, loved it. Um, I did actually invest in some stocks and shares at the t- um, some um, some bonds and shares at the time as well. But at, at that period, I was sort of quite. I was safe about cash and I saved. I wasn't sort of putting it anywhere and, and buying the car was, was a big ticket item. Um, that changed slightly over time. But when I got to Zendesk, um, again, it was a high profile role, but also there were share options and Zendesk was on a roll. It was amazing. Um, so I then bought another fast car, uh, ended up buying a Maserati GTS, um, pimping that out. Um, put more money back into the house uh, and some investments, but also my, my oh, sounds really bad. Sounds like I've had about a billion wives, but my second wife um, had set up a school for, um, I don't know what the term would be sort of globally, but basically um, challenge children, children that again, are, they're given a label now. They weren't when I was younger, but they're given a label of ADHD or autism or something, you know, some spectrum identification. Um, so I, <laughs> investment i think is not the word but i put money into that school to help grow it to four or five schools and help support that from a sort of charitable aspect um type of thing because it was it was the right thing to do uh really so um i got some benefits from that in terms of helping young people you know there wasn't financial benefits but it was it was rewarding um so that's that's really sort of where where it went to and then post post that aspect has been a slightly different journey and i'd say i'm, I'm at that point now where I, I, again i'm I'm risk averse i'm more about keeping cash and that's a ridiculous thing to do i should be putting it into other things it's looking for the right thing to put it into uh, without getting my fingers burnt again so i think that the, the summary is i love fast cars and i love camper vans that's a separate project my desert rat van um around that and um, put it into uh, bonds, our sort of bonds, bond investments, safe bonds, as I call them, uh, government bonds. Funny visual, having a camper van towing a fast car, uh, <laughs> having that juxtaposition <laughs> in your passions. But, um, you know, the interesting part about the charitable aspect, right, I think is that's hugely important, right? It might not be 
uh, investment for making more money, but uh, you know, fulfillment and utility isn't always about more money. Um, you know, it's about the impact uh, sometimes, and that that can be just as, if not more, important uh, along that journey, right? And so, uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't discount that. I would say uh, in that yeah. realm of things, was, right? Um, it was def- definitely rewarding to help see sort of that business. You know, it was a business, um, but see it progress and move forward. Um, but see the outcomes of young people going to college, whereas before they were just written off, um, you know, they're given no hope sort of thing. So, so it was nice and rewarding from that side, most definitely Pain, painful as well. Cause just it's mm. when you're in that sort of arena and, and seeing some other stuff that goes on, but you can't help, you can't change it. You can't make an impact too much. It's, um, it's a side of society I didn't know existed until, um, obviously I got involved in it. So that was kind of the early stage of investment, it sounds like, right? It uh, follows a similar story arc, right, of uh, particularly here in America, what the American dream looks like, right, in terms of get the house, build out the house, have the car, right, focus on that piece. Um, Pre-show, we talked about, you know, a couple other investments that you had made along the way uh, from where you are now and that point. Kind of talk to me a little bit about kind of how those came up and what was the mindset in kind of looking for those strategic investments and kind of what went through your mind from a uh, framework, right. In terms of trying to identify or find some of these investments. Yeah. So, excuse me, when I, um, when I left Sendesk, I had a, a buffer basically. It was like, um, I'd, I'd just gone through my second divorce. Um, I'd sold the big house. I didn't have the overheads. I've rented a property. I've got a couple of the properties that I own and rent. Uh, in a different location, um, but actually I wanted to stay where I was, so I've just rented a little cottage. Um, and uh, a friend of mine that we 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 have a, a passion around cars had said, "Got an opportunity. There's a furniture shop in a in a high class village in Cheshire. Do you want to be part of it?" Yeah, sounds good to me. Uh, went to meet the owner. Um, I was caught up in the the wave of everything's happy and positive. Um, I'm now really settled and everything's good, and entered into a contract to buy into that business uh, and own a retail store. So you've got to imagine I'm, well, I'm 50 now. So I was, I was late forties. I've worked in IT all my life. I've worked in sales and business development in channel. And suddenly I'm entering this world of retail, buying furniture, holding stock and inventory, which is cash intensive um, with a retail foot, you know, and a footfall. And it's like, I don't, I don't, I don't even know why I did it. I think I did it at the time because it was like something different from going to London, being in IT. So, and I do love furniture, I like art and such. Um, after about two or three months, it was very clear that I was not the person to be involved in that business. I should just be a cash person, but also it was very clear that, that business wasn't going to succeed because the footfall was too low. Um, and and again. I think this will come clear over the next sort of conversations is my due diligence wasn't, um, wasn't there. I just wasn't in the right mindset or, or even ready to understand how to do due diligence into a, into a business. Um, so I exited out of that after, out of that after about 12, 12 or 18 months, we shut that business down because it was just drawing. It was, it was basically cash in, no cash out, lots of cash in. Um, and my business partner in that was more, going to be the the person running the store because they live close by it but yeah i just realized this is not not a place to be i can't bring any of my skills to it um i don't really understand i, I love furniture understanding but 
you know, retail stores are different things. So yeah, that was um a painful experience from from a from a cash aspect, obviously, um, but also a painful experience of losing a friendship as well, because me and my friend mm-hmm. fell out over it. Can you talk a little bit about, and I think this would be good for the audience, right? In terms of uh, obviously the allure of the investment that initially drew you in, right? To, you know, what was the time period to the realization that uh, basically like, oh shit, what did I get myself into? Right. And then how do I get myself out? Yeah. I think that the law originally was, it was um, a nice posh village. The furniture was really lovely. It was all handmade and handcrafted and sourced from elsewhere. And and it was it was a bit of glamour. It's like, oh, that that sounds a bit funky. I like my flowery shirts, and we can work in this shop, and we can work with these all footballers that live by. Um, and, and and within three months of owning that component and being part of it, what I realised is, rich people or people with lots of money don't go to retail stores like that. They buy branded stuff from Harrods or Selfridges, and uh, footballers don't come into the shop. And it's like, right, okay what I've realized is what we're looking at in the books is not, not, not correct. Um, foolishly, I should have exited then and said, I've just writing it off. It's done. I didn't, I carried on for another 12 months or more trying to make it work and putting more cash into it. Um, but in the back of my mind, knowing this is not going to work, it, it's a retail store. So I was trying to take it online, do it in an e-commerce and do it as a drop shipping model um, and move to that but we're competing in a space on low margin, whereas actually the retail store was aimed at high-end buyers who weren't coming in. So it was just, it was a disaster. Um, And I kept sort of fooling myself internally saying, I could turn it around, I could do this, I'm not going to fail. And then the realisation is by failing, I've learned something. (laughs) That that was a realisation. It's like exit out um, and, and just exit out and just come out of this. And again, like I say, you know, we did that. We, we, we closed the business down. Um, and I've never, I've still got some of the furniture hanging around the house on the walls and stuff, but, um, it was, you know, it was great, but yeah, I've realized that, you know, failure is not a bad thing. You learn. I know I never open a furniture shop ever again. <laughs> if anybody, and if anybody says about drop shipping furniture, I'll, I'll just tell them to run away. <laughs> it sounds like you, you tried to, take it and relate it to your experience, right? Obviously in the, the online sales, some of that channel uh, piece, right? And trying to link it, right? And I think the, uh, the hubris of entrepreneurs, right? In order to be successful, we need to condition ourselves that we can conquer anything, uh, right? That, uh, it doesn't matter what's in front of us, we're gonna knock that wall down, right? And so it's, um, it's interesting, right? When, uh, as we get a couple questions down, I'd love your perspective looking back, right? How do you separate what we do for ourselves every single day in the business that we know and love and um, are a part of, right. Versus the investment. And, you know, how do you separate that uh, mentality to make, you know, sound decisions. So, um, so coming out of the furniture store, then kind of what, what was the next big thing for you that, uh, you know, came across that you invested in? So um, whilst I was in the furniture store business, I got offered an opportunity to set up um, uh, basically a, a role locally where I live about improving digital services for businesses in, in Lancashire, that's where I live. Um, so that was a, a government-funded role or a, a county council-funded role. I was like, great, okay, do that. 
And on, on the way, met some really great people. It was really interesting. And an opportunity came across that um, a friend, a person that I was working with, was taking their agency business and um, going down the route of building a blockchain um, solution for the cannabis market using LiDAR technology. Um, all those three words together, saying them now, fills you with horror because it's like trying to get investment for block. And this is, so this is sort of, we're in a, a blockchain crypto cycle at the moment. This is again, post the cycle 2018, where it um, down, not down to it, but gone quieter. Um, and put it across and, and basically they needed some funding short term and around that. So I, I helped support that aspect. I was like, okay, this is exciting. Yeah. So we were using LiDAR technology to monitor the cannabis plants and identify problems before they happened uh, it meant it could have reduced costs for farmers, um, increased crops because you pay tax on the crops and all that sort of thing. So, you know, on paper, it was great. Technology built out. We had partners. We had people in America, lots of stuff. Um, you, to, to get that to work, you need a lot of money to make it to work. So, we, you know, mine was, my, my, my money was to help sort of fund that development and move it forward. Um, but again, going to investors talking about a blockchain project that's aimed at the cannabis sector predominantly in the u.s uh, market um around that sort of side of things yeah that's a hard pill to sell <laughs> and again you know realization at the time is i was caught by the bright lights big city it's like oh great we're making gonna make an awesome return on this um, again, I don't have to run a furniture shop. I'm not really involved. I sort of like, you know, I'll, I'll help support this development cycle. Um, and we pushed them. And again, we went through different routes and we were so close to getting investment, um, but it fell over a cliff um, at the time. And, and, and that, yeah, that, that sort of component was, was quite devastating to me financially uh, for one thing, because suddenly it was like, right. Okay. Um, what am I going to do now? Um, but also it was that lesson learned of, you know, due diligence side is absolutely key. And I know that I'm not very good at that. Um, I am now, um, but I wasn't at the time. But also betting on technology or betting on solutions that are in a marketplace that's cooling off, um, but also has legalities around it that are so tight in legislation, it's, yeah, it's an area not to go in. I mean, you can go into it, but you need a lot of funding. And, and people did do it um, and did come up with solutions. And we, we use, a, you know, part of the technology could also monitor security at casinos. It could do car, you know, it's all varied use cases. Um, but yeah, we, we needed a significant amount of investment to build out the proof of concept around that. And it, like I say, it fell over a cliff. Um, but yeah, I came away from that realizing, yeah, blockchain's cool. Cannabis is cool. Crypto is cool. It's all cool, but it's not investable. Um, yeah, let, let the people that are really sort of successful in that space go go with it. And ironically enough, there's a couple of businesses now that have took chunks of investment in in those sectors because, um, again, we're, we're not cooled off now. We're in a hot period. There's a lots of capital about investments are going into things that are at risk or risky, whereas then it wasn't. We're, uh, we're in a cooled off period. So couple of investments that uh, you would probably agree that didn't go as well as you had hoped, uh, particularly from the financial side. And so kind of as you've come out of it now and you've talked a bit about the due diligence, uh, you know, what are those key learnings and uh, 
you know, how do you apply that moving forward? Right. So you mentioned you're good at the due diligence. So knowing that uh, you had, uh, we'll say caught up in the bright, shiny lights, as you articulated, how do you prevent yourself from doing that? And, you know, what are the, you know, two or three top most important things from you that you do from due diligence standpoint now? Yeah, for me now, I'm very cautious. Um, I was cautious before. I'm not a risk person by any means, but very cautious. So, so from a due diligence side, it's, it's about I'll delve into the numbers. I'll look into the accounts. I'll look at the size of market. I'll, basically, what I do now is what I tell my clients. I have to tell myself what I tell my clients. I know that sounds totally ridiculous, and I think you find most people are the same, is listen to your inner thoughts. You advise clients about how to do things. Just do that yourself. Um, so, yeah, so I, I tend to now look at um, where the market is, look at the investment potential, look at, um, you know, how that, that that's operating. And, and again, sort of keep those top of mind when I'm looking at anything that's been put in front of me, whether it's sweat equity, capital investment, or, or anything like that. It's kind of work with these people. Is there a potential market? What's that size of market? And, and finally, underlying all of this is what is a risk to me if i if i put some money in or time or whatever what's the impact to me does it mean that i've gonna have to work until i'm 70 or does it mean actually no it's fine if something goes wrong it's i'll learn from it but it's not a massive impact on my financial status moving forward Um, and that's that's the key aspect is that is that risk appetite and the impact and um, with the, the the ones I've just described there, those those that they were way too risky, and the impact to me was too high. Um, you know, when when you reflect back and you look at it, and sort of you put it on a spreadsheet or put it on numbers or right on the back of a piece of whatever, yeah, the risk was daft. It wasn't my thing, but the the impact to me of both of those was substantial, and um, yeah, I was not. You know, critical in a sense. And I think that's that's what I look at now is what that impact to me. That's that's the core um, component I take away. On that that risk conversation and the impact to you, does that change uh, in terms of the return that you were looking for out of an investment, given the amount of risk, um, or does your expectation of return stay the same and just looking for different things from a risk profile? Yeah, I'd say it's, I'd say the expectation stays the same. I think it's more about um, what I can gain from it. Um, you know, if we look at the risk aspect, it's like yeah, everything's risky no matter what. Um, and again, I suppose you know it comes back to risk is a, is a, is an age based thing. We touched upon this before, but risk is very age based. So so I'm fifty. My my earning potential is. I don't really want to, I don't want to have an earning potential until I'm 70. I don't want to be doing stuff until I'm 70. I want to enjoy at least some part of life. Um, so, so my risk is based on that aspect as well. So if I, if I had a million pounds and I put a million pounds into something, I've got nothing in the pot. It's going to take, uh, you know, I've only got so much time to earn that money back um, to keep me going. Whereas if, when I was in my twenties, I had forever. I have forever. I was indestructible. It didn't matter. I could I could lose whatever it took and then get it again. And I didn't because I wasn't. I was married and had children when I was twenty. Um, but it, it's that aspect of I had a different mindset then. I think that's when I'm speaking to anybody of a different age set. 
it's a criteria as always talk about is, you know, risk is based on your age and how many times you can win back or earn uh, what you've lost. So I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, he's 65 and he's lost everything twice. Now, within the last 18 months, he's took over a business, he's bought into it and he's doing two or three million pounds, not dollars, pounds, turnover, decent gross profit. And he's 65. Um, and he didn't think he could do it again, but he has done. So I think, you know, the, the risk for me is always based on that that earning potential um, and putting a blocker, a barrier around it. So as we're wrapping up here, what's the one thing that you would leave the audience kind of from your experience, a piece of advice that you would give them uh, as they're kind of looking at it uh, from their investment perspective? I think it, it all comes down to a comfort factor, doesn't it? I think it's and and how much risk you want to take. And and for me, it always comes back to are you gonna go all in or 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 not? And if you're gonna go all in, does that mean that you're gonna be impact you or your family and you can't earn that back? Um so you know, I've put money into crypto, I've lost money, I've earned money, I know I'm never gonna put money in crypto again, and that's not no guy it's just it's just too nerve-wracking it's just a mess and same with stocks that's why i just put it in bonds government bonds but i think you know the, the key aspect is is just reflect on what the impact is to you and your friends and family because if the impact is that you're destitute and you're going to put pressure on your friends and family it is not the right decision because and you know it's that old idea if it looks too good to be true it is so it, it's always take away what's that impact to you, your family, close friends around you. And if it's going to be a massive impact and massive risk, don't do it because you're just going to get stressed out of it. It's not worth it. Find other things to do. Find more productive things to do. Appreciate those insights, Stuart, um, and appreciate you joining us today. Um, you know, what for our audience members that want to, you know, circle back and learn more or connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, cool. Um, well, there's a couple of places, uh, a couple of plugs. So if you're a B2B SaaS company and you want to know about channel, I love talking about channel uh, and we can chat all day long. Um, and that's uh, channel as, channelasservice.com. It's actually called Channel as a Service, which is Channel as Service. Um, and again, if you're into podcasts, go and check out podcasthawk.com. Um, we're, we're a database of um, podcasts, so you can go and search on there. So that's that's my, my two places where you can see me hanging out and find some flowery shirt pictures. <laughs> awesome well thank you for joining us today Stuart. look forward to uh keeping in touch yeah me too it's been a pleasure been great talking to you Liam. likewise thank you for joining us today on the prosperity perspective if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast please head over to the prosperityperspective.com where you can hear from other successful business owners on their approach to investments on our website you'll be able to learn more about how dml capital currently helps other business owners like yourself, diversify their investments and grow their wealth. Take our short quiz to see if you're ready to take the next steps toward your financial success. 